and welcome to All Tomorrow. I'm Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. And recently, leaders of two Arab states flew to Washington, D.C. to meet with President Donald Trump and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to sign an accord that established peaceful, diplomatic and normalized relations with Israel. We're going to take a closer look at that accord, but more importantly, we think it's important to understand what this all means and what are the real ramifications beyond the media hype and the attention. And with the help of our guest, Abdulhalik Abdullah from the Emirates, we'll take a shot at identifying some winners and losers and engage in some forecasting of what the Middle East might look like with a heavier influence from those small Gulf states. And Peter, let's start with the agreement itself. So the White House, never missing a biblical beat to entice all the evangelic uh, supporters, grandiosely dubbed these the Abraham Accords. They consist of formally establishing diplomatic relations between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain. And in exchange, Israel has pledged to set aside all its efforts towards annexation of Palestinian lands in the West Bank. At first sight, it is a win for everyone, except, of course, the Palestinians, and the Accords also open a possibility of other Arab states following suit. So remember, after this agreement, these countries are the third and fourth to open relations with Israel after Egypt and Jordan that have had them for quite some time. Yeah, you know, Muni, it's it's sort of interesting because it's, it's a little all in the clouds, because while signing this thing is significant, it isn't really, really a peace treaty because, you know, those countries really aren't and sort of never really have been at war with Israel. In contrast, let's remember that Egypt and Jordan, the only Arab nations that until now have active diplomatic ties with Israel, signed the peace treaty. And that was really a peace treaty after fighting four wars with Israel. And so critics argue that this doesn't necessarily change and bring all uh, that much closer the Middle East to a real peace. That's very true. And one thing is also true that Abraham Accords gave Trump and Bibi a much needed cosmetic political win at home in a difficult time in the middle of criticism for poor COVID management and tensions on the respective political fronts. It also allowed the UAE to look conciliatory abroad and to soften Saudi Arabia and Bahrain's very poor human rights reputation in the West. And for Saudi Arabia, this is especially important, and it has been mostly recognized lately for killing dissidents and enabling the war in Yemen that has resulted in a horrific humanitarian crisis. Okay, but but the, the agreement... We shouldn't be downplaying it. The agreement is significant. Gulf Arab states and Israel have been inching together for some time on economic, military, and technological fronts. The agreement formalizes a framework for the relationship. And beyond opening embassies, it allows the UAE access to trade and eventually to U.S. security equipment and intelligence, which is no small feat. But it does something more. And this is the interesting part about it, Mooney. The the Gulf states have put their considerable monies to work on upgrading their military, cultural, scientific, academic infrastructure. You see world-class hospitals and pharmaceuticals companies and banks and digital companies, they all have headquarters in the Gulf. The Louvre opened a new museum in Abu Dhabi. New York University is one of a whole host of big, big Western universities to open imposing branches in the UAE. 
But here's what's really new, that the Gulf countries are now moving from all this cultural and business leadership to a new thing, which is diplomatic leadership. I agree. And that is true. But Peter, how much real change do do these accords bring in the Middle East? So case in point, it does very little to solve the Israeli-Palestinian issue. If anything, it isolates it. And the intentions of its signatories are really mostly self-serving. However, what it does do is create an absolute realignment of the region's power structure and influence, especially with regard to Iran and Egypt. Well, I mean, that already is a big deal in and of itself, because for Iran, with its damaged relations with the UAE and Saudi Arabia, the agreement is seriously bad news. To have countries with a shared distrust of Iran banding together comes as a warning to Tehran, especially if the agreement is going to be expanded to include military and security areas. Empowering the small Gulf states with military might tips the military balance, and politically, it sort of sets a big tone and bulwark against the Shia regime in Iran, framing it as the common enemy of a cluster of states that are now aligned with Israel. And also, let's talk about Egypt for a bit. At peace with Israel since 1971 and the region's largest and most important country, has also publicly celebrated the agreement. But for Cairo and to some extent for Jordan, this new robust agreement sheds light on the superficial nature of their own relations with Israel. Uh, The so-called warmer peace that's taking place now brings to the surface the shortcoming of these two allies tied by what has been called a cold peace with Israel, focusing mostly on security cooperation, but with no real trade or diplomacy our diplomatic teeth. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I would just add in the case of Egypt, you know, it's been the largest and most important Arab country, not just recently for centuries. I mean, it, it is certainly the by far the largest population, the most powerful. And yet these small countries seem to be just zooming forward. So let's 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 help get help to redraw this map. And we've invited a true expert. Abdul Halik Abdallah is a prominent Emirati political commentator and academic. He was a longtime professor of political science, a senior fellow at the London School of Economics, and served as the chairman of the Arab Council for Social Science. He was also director of the Gulf Research Unit in Sharjah. Abdul Halik Abdallah. His research focuses on political changes in the Gulf and the Arab world. He's the author of several books, and the latest one, The Gulf Moment, focuses on the emergence of the six Arab Gulf states. Abdul Halik, welcome to Altamar. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Peter. So let me ask you the first question. Uh, On paper, the so-called Abraham Accords look like a win-win agreement, at least for those who were around the table. What's your vision of this? There are three partners to this accord, uh, the United States, Israel, and the United Arab Emirates. And I would definitely uh, agree with that statement that each one of these three uh, partners to this peace accord have uh, won something. Uh, America is back as a negotiating partner. I think it has uh, uh, restored its credibility as a fair uh, mediator. So in that case, I think... uh, America, but more specifically the president and his team has won some admiration because of the accord in the States and outside the States. Israel, I think, especially Netanyahu, has come out as a, as a big winner too. And I think Israelis have got now the second biggest economy as a partner. They have now the United Arab Emirates as a partner. They have a peace with the third Arab country, the first Gulf country. So I think Israel is also a winner uh, 
in, in many cases. But to me, I think the biggest winner is the United Arab Emirates here. The UAE has emerged as a leader, as a regional leader, as an influential power. It is now, uh, as I say always, uh, uh, welcome in Washington. It's becoming a credible ally of the United States, uh, reaffirming that state status too. And uh, uh, the UAE, I think, is going to benefit in every single way you look at it, strategically, uh, economically, commercially, technologically. So yes, I, I, I fully agree with this assessment. Win, win for all of them. So let's go just go a step further. And, and how is this going to reshape geopolitics in the Middle East? It, who, who's going to be weakened? And most importantly, I mean, you've made the argument about how the UAE has become stronger, but who else comes out of this a winner? I think uh, the moderate camp, if the so-called in the region, this camp that is... Uh, promoting peace, moderation. I think they are a big winner. And here I'm talking about United Arab Emirates, Egypt, including Saudi Arabia. And now we have Jordan and Israel on board. And of course, the net uh, loser, and this is Iran. Iran has always been viewed here and by almost every country in the world as a destabilizing factor. And I think this uh, this accord is going to uh, it looks like a, a nightmare uh, to, to Tehran, uh, the guys in Tehran, who have come out uh, with the strongest condemnation between all the states uh, uh, that have reacted to this accord. So the biggest weak, the biggest uh, uh, loser is, uh, is Iran, and the biggest uh, winner in this is this uh, moderate camps. Uh, uh, and now they have a, a new partner called Israel. You've spoken of the small Gulf states as new centers of economic power, activity, creativity in the Arab world that are now eclipsing the region's traditional powers, as you mentioned, like Egypt, Syria, Iraq. And in your own words, and I quote you, the smallest Gulf state has more influence than the biggest Arab state. Could you explain that? Where did you read that? <laughs> we have our sources. <laughs> I uh, know you do. Okay, well, I think uh, it is unfair these days to call the United Arab Emirates to start with as a small state. There's nothing small about the United Arab Emirates uh, anymore. It's not a small state economically, militarily, diplomatically. Every which way you look at the United Arab Emirates, that has reached that uh, that uh, that is in its way to to reach uh, Mars. That uh, has built a nuclear power generator. That has the second biggest economy. In in the entire region that has uh, uh, the strongest uh, uh, air force after Israel. There's nothing small about these countries anymore. They are no longer as oil-based as as used to be. They are no longer the decklings that need uh, outside protection, although everybody does in a way from Japan to Germany to everybody else. So I don't believe this in this theory uh, that looks at the Arab Gulf state, specifically the United Arab Emirates, where I come from, as a small state. They are by now middle power, emerging middle power, on par with all the 30 other middle power in the world. So the paradigm that looks at UAE and the Arab Gulf states as a small state is no longer applicable, Muni. So if these uh, Gulf states are the modern side of the Arab world, how is that compatible with uh, the strict religious and cultural rules that its citizens and particular women are facing? Okay, two answers, since you're interested in women, Muni being, uh, I guess, uh, the first answer to this is, look, I mean, tradition is not holding back uh, the opening 
of the society, the UAE society and Bahrain and Qatar, etc. If you come around, you see fully modern societies by, by any standards of modernity. We know different from Singapore. We know different from many uh, European countries. It's, uh, it's an open country, very tolerant very diversified, it's a cosmopolitan uh, city like Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Doha, Manama, wherever you go. So the, the, the notion that these are tribal, traditional, conservative is no longer true. Maybe some of this applied to Saudi Arabia, for sure, but even Saudi Arabia with Prince Mohammed bin Salman is trying to lessen the grip of conservatism on the society. So a conservative, there's nothing wrong for being conservative. You have a conservative party. The UK is a conservative society in that sense with, with, you know, with the royalty, with the aristocracy. So there is a, a, a beautiful blend of conservatism and modernism and opening up to the, to the world. Uh, the women of the United Arab Emirates, for instance, have probably as much right as, as you could think of. They are in the cabinet, they are in the parliament, they are, in, 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 as, as they are ambassadors, they are judges. They even fly the F-16, the best and the latest uh, besides the F-35. We have you know, women that participate nearly fully in the development of this country. So even women are not as the image of Arab women are being hold back uh, uh, and not being as fully participant in the in the in the development of this country let me um shift the map northwards and let's talk a little bit about how the abraham accords i'm going to use i'm going to use president trump's words to describe it how it affects the you know what has been until now the prominent middle east conflict uh, for for so many years which is the arab israeli conflict and you know voices uh, including the Israel Israel uh, Policy Forum, have called these accords the end of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Do you think that's an overstatement? Very much so. I think that is just taking this accord too far. I don't think the accord is going in any way uh, going to solve the Arab-Israeli conflict or the Palestinian issue here. I think this is something that is uh, not necessarily, this, this accord is not necessarily the solution to uh, seven years old uh, uh, regional conflict, very complicated one. And I think this is due partly to the fact that there is no Israeli partner for peace that joins the uh, Palestinians, uh, unlike men, what many people uh, think. I think the current right-wing Netanyahu government is not interested in peace. It's interested in grabbing more, more, more land, building more settlement. And with that kind of uh, policy, I don't think they are true partner for peace. But the UAE has managed to, at least for a while, four years, as we have heard, put annexation uh, on the shelf. And this is an opening, uh, it's an opportunity, an opening window. And maybe, maybe somebody in Israel will, will feel it that way, and maybe they will come back as a true partner for peace. But this accord is not going to resolve 70 years of the Palestinian issue, unfortunately. It's not going to lead to, to two-state solutions. It's not going to bring uh, to, to, to justice to the Palestinian people. You know, I've had I have a Palestinian friend who has said to me that these accords are in a way an abandonment of the Palestinian cause. Who, 
you know, he, his point was now who is supporting us? If we can't even depend on our friends in the Gulf to support us, who is supporting us? So I, I guess the question here is how does I, two questions, if I may. So how does the Gulf continue to support the Palestinian cause? And the second question is, won't this just make the Palestinian resistance factions, the hardest line Palestinians, even stronger? Look, signing this accord doesn't mean that the UAE or, to that matter, any other Gulf states or Arab states are turning their back on the Palestinian issue. This is one just issue that is not going to be to go away, and I don't think there is one Arab person or one Arab uh, state is going to turn their back on this issue. This will continue for and, until this is resolved. Egypt has signed the. The, the accord uh, 40 years ago, and it didn't turn its back on the Palestinians. Jordan signed uh, a normalization treaty, and it didn't turn its back on the Palestinians. So I don't believe in this uh, uh, notion that the uh, normalizing relationship with Israel means that we are uh, turning down the issues, uh, 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 the, the Palestinian issues, and pushing it aside. I don't think these two th- needs to be delinked. The normalization with Israel is one issue that will continue and it's becoming more and more inevitable. And the issue, the Palestinian issue and their right for, for, for a state is another issue. It's a just issue. And nobody in the Arab world, the Muslim world, or the world at large is going to, to, to turn their back. There is 140 plus people who have already recognized Palestine, uh, Palestinian Authority and Palestine as a state. It's a member state in, in the United Nations. Um, uh, at least in the General Assembly. So I don't think we need to mix these two together. Having said this, finally, I think the Palestinian leadership has to come up and become more engaging and become more in reality with uh, 21st century uh, realities. And I think the problem probably uh, lies within the old corrupt even Palestinian leaders that they need to really uh, come out of their confinement in Ramallah and engage uh, not just Israel, but engage the world in a much more, uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in a different uh, discourse uh, to win the sympathy and the support for the Palestinian cause. Back to the agreement. Do you think other Arab countries will follow UAE and Bahrain in establishing ties with Israel? And, and I'm asking, of course, in particular about Saudi Arabia. Well, this is the $1 million or $1 million dirham question that everybody has been asking uh, since the signing of this treaty. And, you know, there are a lot of candidates, Sudan, Oman, Saudi Arabia, etc., etc. Yesterday, even Lebanon have uh, announced that they are engaging uh, Israel to sign uh, and finalize the border issue. That's, I think, a first step towards normalization. I think normalization, normal relationship with Israel is becoming now inevitable. I think everybody is, is, is recognizing the fact that you cannot defeat Israel militarily, that this boycott uh, or uh, whatever uh, of Israel that has lasted 70 years they didn't make Israel any weaker. Indeed, if anything, it made it uh, even stronger. So let's start a different strategy. Let's start a different approach. The Arab world has come up with its own, uh, by the way, peace plan. 22 countries were ready some 20 years ago, agrees to the formation of uh, a Palestinian state. So I think normalization uh, is, uh, is, is an issue that all governments are uh, debating. But who is going to be next? This is my guess is as good as yours, Monique. 
And what about Egypt and Jordan, who have been the two countries with relations with Israel for years? After these so-called Abraham Accords, it seems that their own agreements lack um, lack muscle, lack teeth, and um, are kind of weaker than the current agreement with Israel. Yeah, this is a different, I think. We have an entirely different uh, uh, agreement and accord with Israel here. This is not uh, similar to the Egypt uh, the 40, 1979 agreement. That was a strictly a peace accord, and it was strictly political. And it was strictly, uh, you know, to disengage from further uh, war. And it is even different from the 1996, I think, 20, the 2009 accord with Jordan. This is an economic, a purely interest-to-interest interest, uh, deal between the United, United Arab Emirates and Israel. And as a result, it is here to stay. That uh, Egyptian deal has been now for, there for 40 years, and it's still continuing. The Jordanian uh, piece is there for the past 20 years, and I think this is a, a new addition to all of it. And it is hugely, hugely different in content and hugely different in, 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 in what it needs to, 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 to achieve. So uh, the two types of agreement that we had, two, two agreements, peace agreement that we had, is vastly different on many scores from the one the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, have signed with Israel uh, this month. A word about Iran. You mentioned Tehran is being isolated. Is it in a position at all to shape a regional strategy, or has it its hand been weakened? Well, Iran is known to be the most destabilizing actor in, in the region. And it's, this is a view not just from the region, but this is a view from uh, world capital too. Europe thinks that way, United States thinks that way, almost everybody. So what do you do with Iran is the question. Some uh, come with the carrots and others like a Reagan, like a Trump administration have come with a strong uh, stick. So approaching Iran uh, is where we differ, but we all agree on the fact that Iran is deeply destabilizing and it's been a destabilizing force for the past 40 years, since 1979, uh, since the revolution. But for one thing we know for sure, that this accord is viewed as a nightmare in, in Tehran and the, and the guys in, in power in Tehran. Now they see Israel is coming uh, uh, next to them. There will be an Israeli embassy in, in Manama, uh, the Israeli embassy in Abu Dhabi, just 200 kilometers away. They have never thought of this. So I think they are the one who pushed UAE and pushing the region into uh, this kind of accord with Israel, with Israel. But the UAE has made it very clear that this is not an alliance. This is not meant to be targeting Iran. So in that sense, this is strictly between UAE and Israel, and it's mutually beneficial. So I think the, the Iranians are going to be worried because of it. And the weaker the Iranian get, I think it's better for the country because it weakens the most destabilizing force in the, in the, in the region. This, this is such an interesting subject and we're, we're, we're going back and forth. It really is a, it's a game-changing issue. But I want to go back to a country that I hugely admire, I know very well, which is Egypt, which is so continuously unable to find its footing. It's struggling politically, economically. It is there a chance that also this new this new foundation which the UAE and Bahrain have built can also foster greater cooperation among Arab countries so that 
big, such influential countries such as Egypt are able to sort of come back, uh, and, 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 and be what they should be, which is leaders in the region. It will take time. I was in Egypt just uh, last week. I came back uh, two days ago. I spent there six days meeting a lot of people and talking to a lot of academics and and, uh, and experts. And I think that, uh, you know, two, three things that I came up with, that Egypt today is better off than Egypt uh, a year ago. And Egypt today is much better off than it was 2011, 2012 during that Arab Spring uh, time. Egypt is recovering, and it is recovering nicely, slowly maybe, but recovering. There are a few things that you and I and others probably don't like because of the heavy-handedness of the, of the regime there. But Egypt, on many accounts, has, has, uh, has been doing very well. They have built uh, some of the, uh, a world-class infrastructure during the last five years that Egypt have not seen over the past 100 uh, years. Egypt is working on its education system, and there's a deep change in the education system that I uh, have not uh, probably seen before. Egypt is also haven't gone through the same havoc that Syria and uh, and, and Libya and Yemen, etc. Those countries that were affected by the Arab Spring. So it is it is quite uh, on a, on a solid foot. Uh, UAE, Saudi Arabia, uh, the World Bank, the IMF, China, everybody is coming to the help of, uh, of Egypt. Look at Egypt one year at a time. And uh, for the past six, seven, eight years, and I think they have been inching uh, uh, on, their, on their curve uh, north, and each year is bringing uh, more good uh, uh, news. Egypt probably the only, the, the only country, the, 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 the country that w- was not profoundly affected or paralyzed by the coronavirus. They have really managed to to, to do better than most. Uh, their GDP uh, did not go into the red. It is still in the 1%, 2%. So I, I, th- I, I, I look at Egypt and I see plenty of good signs besides the human rights issues maybe or the democracy uh, trans, tra- tra- transition in Egypt. Good news for Egypt. And I think, you know, we need Egypt. It's the most important uh, country in uh, in the Middle East, and it has to be on board. And I think it is on board with this accord. Let me let me just end our great interview by asking you: you know, how do you imagine the Gulf in five years? I mean, you you've made an argument here of of this newfound influence that the Gulf has as a uh, as a technological, as a cultural. Uh, area, but also now as a political heavy hitter. And so tell us a little bit about how you envision this evolving and what look at 2025 or 2026 and what will be the Gulf's influence in the region? Okay, well, I have this uh, come up with this notion, the Gulf moment, the Arab Gulf moment in contemporary Arab history. And uh, uh, the Gulf states of the 21st century all of them, the six of them, are vastly different in all indicators, economic, social, political, diplomatic, etc., 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 than the Arab Gulf states of the 20th century. And during this last 20 years, I think they have emerged as new centers of power, new centers of activities, new centers of creativity even. So the Gulf capital, the Gulf states are today are the one who are in the driver's seat. 
because Egypt is busy with its own, Syria is completely out, dismantled, Iraq is in shambles, and everybody else is really not doing well, except for these six Arab Gulf states. They are stable, they are prosperous, they are moderate, they are open, they have managed to, you know, present the new Arabs. And in that sense, the six Arab Gulf states today have more influence over 16 Arab states, small and uh, big, than the 16 Arab states on the six Gulf states. That's the Gulf moment. That's a very interesting equation. That's an, a new interesting development. And I think it is in here to stay, not for the next five years, but throughout the first part of the 21st century, uh, Peter. Abdul Halik Abdullah, thank you so very much for joining us on Altamar. Thank you for having me. So, Peter, this is really interesting. The world is basically going down the drain, and suddenly the Middle East is the good news story in the kind of the, the happy face of the geopolitical arena. It's really, really hard to believe. It was a um, great, very thorough, upbeat portrayal of a region that's always been a, a problem area in the world. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just smiling, Mooney, because I love this thing of the happy face of the geopolitical arena. I, I, I know. I mean, it's so true. I mean, we here we are in pandemic chaos uh, in the United States, economic recession around the world, race relations tension, and yet... The, re- the region that has brought us consistently bad news for the last 50, 60 years has now, um, we have this interview with this very brilliant analyst who is telling us that the sun is rising and it's um, a great day in the Gulf. Uh, so it's, it's, it really was amazing to me. It sounds very upbeat and and positive, but I just do wonder how much consensus there is within the Gulf states about what's happening, whether there's dissent inside. I still don't completely uh, believe that the situation for women is perfect. So I do think that there's... um, you know, I, I, I have a little skepticism about this very happy story, although I'm very encouraged with the data and with the, you know, with the, what what's happening lately. Um, I just have some little doubts. Mooney is clearly raining on Abdul Halik's sunny day in the Gulf, but we're going to leave it at that. Thank you for joining us on Altamar. Altamar.